0: Well, we've been uh, working through what well, just started, actually, this new series. We're calling it the, uh, the Seven Deadly Sins, and I, I guess we're just using it as a bit of a framework down through history, uh, various stages, uh, series of, uh, of issues have presented themselves and really brought to the forefront uh, of people's minds. But one of the things that uh, I've found helpful is to be able to use this idea of the seven deadly sins because it is a way, if you like, for us to, in a situation like ours, to be able to think about the issues of sin. Uh, We do, uh, very often, we kind of think of sin as a bit of a laugh, a bit of a joke. Uh, The word sin has become synonymous, synonymous, sorry, I didn't mean to say that, The word sin has become synonymous with a kind of uh, almost a humorous perspective. You know, uh, if you've been a a bit of a a bad boy or a bad girl at the office Christmas party, you know, ha ha, have you sinned? The reality is we know that those kind of situations are incredibly damaging and incredibly painful and very wrong. And so we want to work through some of those things. And uh, we're coming to one which, uh, first one we're looking at specifically this afternoon, which is the issue of pride. And we're going to use a model from the Bible which is, uh, the life of this king, Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to be looking at Nebuchadnezzar as a way of helping us to work through this issue. It has not been, don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, she's playing at one o'clock tomorrow afternoon, it's not been, in one sense, well, kind of a mixed week, really, for Serena Williams. Beginning of the week, she complained bitterly. In fact, she was backed up by the I don't know, the women's, I'm not into tennis, you know, the women's kind of uh, lawn tennis organisation. She was backed up. She was complaining uh, because her and her sister, Venus Williams, once again had been, in her mind, relegated to court number two. And as she put it, uh, yeah, um, the problem is uh, they've never moved all of these other big players you know the big uh, names in tennis the big male players uh, they all get to play on centre court court number one but me and Venus we always seem to end up on court number two I mean to be honest look at who we are is the kind of background to it and it just struck me wow what a great picture uh, of one of the challenges that we have when we come to this issue of pride it hits us All over the place and here's this great tennis player who's basically saying, do you know, look at who I am. I shouldn't be playing on court number two. I deserve to be playing on court number one or centre court. It just struck me as what a great topical way for us to begin the issue of this uh, problem of pride. We're going to be looking at this man, Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to be looking at the reading that we uh, went through. And particularly from verse 28 of Daniel chapter uh, 4, we see this. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. All of this. Well, it's, kind of, it's telling us that there's something has gone on before. And it's a fairly long chapter which we weren't able to read all of it. And so we'll give you a bit of a background as to what's happened. Let's place ourselves, shall we, thousands of years ago in the historical empire of Babylon. The greatest empire that the world had seen up to that point. Uh, You've heard of, I'm sure, one of the seven wonders of the world, hanging gardens of Babylon. Uh, You might also know, therefore, that the Babylonians are uh, given the, if you like, uh, attributed with being the first, in relative terms, creators of skyscrapers. Now, uh, their skyscrapers, because of building technology, wasn't what we would consider skyscrapers, but they were the ones who were first attributed with the idea, apparently, of building great structures, the Babylonian empire. Isn't it fascinating that what we're seeing here is the message of the Bible, God's word, uh, striking not only into the very heart of the biggest empire that the world had seen, but actually at the very center of the royal court. You couldn't get in world terms anybody bigger than Nebuchadnezzar. Even in today's world, there really isn't anybody comparable. People would say that Obama is, is the number one because of his status as President of the United States. But we know that in, in comparative terms, there are other world powers which are, if you like, coming up on the rails. But for Nebuchadnezzar, he was at the absolute pinnacle of world domination. He was recognised, he was seen as the most successful man. Now, 12 months earlier, he is troubled. He's enjoying his, his status. But like everybody else, he has to sleep. And like everybody else, at some point in his life, he's troubled by a dream. And he has this dream one night... And he recounts this dream to uh, his wise men of his, uh, of his royal court. And then finally he rec- recounts the dream to, if you like, God's man in the place, Daniel. And the dream goes something like this. I dreamt that there was this tree that grew. And so you, you know what it's like to have dreams that are kind of almost like Steven Spielberg dreams. Uh, visual explosions where you can't quite uh, it can't quite be real and Nebuchadnezzar's dream was a bit like that because this tree grew out of all proportion so that the whole of the world came under its uh, umbrella if you like Uh, everything was under this tree and then all of a sudden while everything seemed to be under the umbrella and everything in the whole world was finding its focus and its protection under this great tree, there is a voice from heaven, a shattering voice which says the time has come, effectively, for this tree to be cut down and to be bound with straps, metal straps, uh, and just shoots left. Uh, for, for seven periods of time uh, until it is broken and humbled. Nebuchadnezzar, can you imagine, have you ever had one of those experiences? I, I was chatting with somebody a few months ago where, in fact I've had two or three conversations actually, where somebody expressed to me the, the power of a dream They can be incredibly powerful, can't they? Overwhelmingly so. Nebuchadnezzar was like this. He was shaken by the impact of this dream. He kind of knew that there had to be something more to it. And uh, he goes to all of his wise men and no success. And he comes to uh, Daniel, Belteshazzar, as he's been renamed. And he recounts uh, this dream to Belteshazzar. And Daniel in that situation, he, he's rocked because he knows what the dream is about. And as a courtier in the most powerful uh, uh, royal court in the whole world, with the most ult- well, the ultimate power stood before him, he's faced with a dilemma. Because the message that he has to bring is terrifying to bring to somebody. He says this I kind of hope it isn't for you, but this is what it is because it is for you. (laughs) That's kind of how he says it. It, It's sort of, I I, I really don't want this to be for you, but this is for you, King. What's going to happen is that you are going to be stripped, you're going to be broken, you're going to be humbled for seven periods. Then it's going to be reestablished. That's the background for the dream. And that's the background for verse 28. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Not, is this not, is not this great Babylon? Which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Wow. Two things. Number one. Look at what he's saying. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've achieved. He just walks out and he looks out you can imagine he's a beautiful sunny day clear skies you know when the when the sun shines on every building and brings out all of its detail and the hanging gardens are looking incredible in the background and he steps out onto this terrace with this balcony view of the whole of the city and he says look what I've done this is all of me and what is it doing It's here to point to me. It's all about me. Look at what I have achieved. That's the first thing. The second thing is... ...12 months later. 12 months later. It didn't happen in an instant... You know that that dream that he had and that warning that he'd received? That kind of, Daniel says, I just wish it wasn't for you, but it is for you. He actually says to him, repent. He says, you have an opportunity at this point in time to do something because it might be that this might not fall upon you. It might be that it That God might hold back. Twelve months later. Nothing has changed deep down. I want to ask you a question. Because I think that this just points to it. Are you in a situation. Where you know. You just know. That God has spoken to you. You just know it. You can't deny it. You might look back and you can say, back there I know that God has spoken to me, but (laughs) I'm 12 months on and have done nothing about it. Can I just encourage you, God doesn't forget conversations. He doesn't forget the conversations he's had with us. It is not frivolous chit-chat that he has with us. It is not the kind of thing that he just drifts in and out and he suggests things. He says to Nebuchadnezzar at this point, you need man, you need to get real. I am going to do this. And Nebuchadnezzar was terrified for a short time. But then after a little bit, it just got back to normal. It just got back to normal because he felt, whew, got away with that one. I was scared for a while back there, but now I'm okay. Twelve months later, he's standing on his terrace and he looks out. It's not this. Great Babylon, everything That I have done. And while the words were still in the king's mouth. There fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar. To you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. As he is speaking. It's not like God just suddenly remembers. It's like now. Here's the moment. I've given you 12 months Nebuchadnezzar. I've challenged you about this issue of your pride. And 12 months later you are back where you always have been. And now is the moment. As he is still speaking, the word of God comes. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men. In your dwelling shall we be the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar and he goes crazy. We see the most powerful man in the whole of the world driven out and living like an animal. Now We we haven't got time to go into it. But there is historical evidence for this. We see a ruler in Babylon with a seven-year exile from power. See that. And here's this, this king who is driven out so that he ends up living like an animal. It says that he grows. You can see the picture, can't you? He gets gnarly... Nails, he gets long kind of unkept feathery hair, he lives like an animal out in the fields, he's uncontrollable, he's just, nobody can go near him. This is the king. This is the most powerful man in the world who is reduced to an incommunicative, dangerous man who's living alone. I mean, you can't get a bigger contrast, can you? great leader is brought low he's driven out of the palace because of his madness and yet at the same time he knows through all of this he knows just as he knew back then 12 months earlier this is God dealing with me what do we see? We see uh, as we as we go on we see there's a point in time when ne- uh, Nebuchadnezzar finally recognizes this. At the end of the days, I, this is Nebuchadnezzar now writing, this is the most powerful man in the world now writing, saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. What a turning point that is. What an amazing turning point that is. At that point, he turns, he lifts his eyes to heaven and his reason returned. All of the time, for those seven years, his eyes, it would seem, the way he writes it, his eyes have not been heavenward. They've not. He's been driven away. He's not looked to God. And at that point, seven years on, as God had said, his his eyes are turned to heaven and his reason returned to him. It would seem in an instant. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that amazing? What a picture. What a picture of the challenge and the insidious nature of pride. You know, most of us aren't in Nebuchadnezzar's shoes. (laughs) Most of us are still living in the kind of dream world that believes that success is going to answer the problems. You know, if I get there, all of the problems will be resolved. The reality is that, well, we're in a better position probably with the media coverage that we have these days. We are in in a better position than probably all of history to see that getting there doesn't answer the problems of the world. Getting there doesn't solve the issues. Nebuchadnezzar is a picture for us. You get to the highest pinnacle. uh, Who could challenge him? And yet he is still terrified. One dream still shatters him. One intervention and he's filled with fear. Why? Why is it that the one who is unchallengeable in the whole of the world, the one who has no worries about anything, why is it that he still has that fear? Because he knows that deep down (laughs) that he's still not in control. He knows deep down that somehow there can be that cosmic intervention. That heavenly intervention. He knows deep down that there is still the potential for God to intervene in my life. He might not have called it God. He might not have described it as that way. But he might only have said, I am still fearful. But the reality is that he knows that that is still the case. He is filled with pride. And yet he is still fearful. And you might sit and say, well, do you know what? I am not in danger of being guilty of pride. Because I am not even close to, to getting that. I'm not even close to having all of the things. I'm not even close to the success that Nebuchadnezzar has achieved. So I'm, I'm Don't count me in it. Here's the reality. Pride can be expressed in two ways. It can be expressed in the way that Nebuchadnezzar expressed it. Look at Babylon. Look what I've achieved. In other words, pride can be expressed as this. It's good. Haven't I achieved it? It's all about me. But pride can also be expressed in this way, it's bad life, and I don't deserve it. Can't pride be expressed in that way? It's bad, and I don't deserve it, is as much an expression of pride as look at what I've achieved. On the one hand, it says, I've done all of this, on the other hand, it says, I'm too good to deserve this. I'm better than this. Now, that kind of starts to hit home a bit for most of us, doesn't it? Because none of us can say that we're up there, but most of us pretty much can say, this has gone on and I don't deserve it. This has happened in life and I don't deserve it. You see, that's the challenge, isn't it? That pride can be expressed either in, because we've got it, Or because we haven't got it. Because I've achieved it. Or because for all sorts of circumstances I haven't achieved it. Or it hasn't happened for me. Or this has happened. Or that has happened. And we sit back and we say, I'm too good for this. I'm too good for this. I want to say, well, how do we resolve that? If that's what we're like, if that is the challenge, if that is me spiritually saying in this world at a deep level... Not nothing to do with, you know, the kind of, this is a deep issue. Nebuchadnezzar's was a deep issue. It wasn't because he wanted just a little bit more money. It was because of a deep level of dissatisfaction, spiritually speaking. Deep down he was dissatisfied. In exactly the same way we can be deep down dissatisfied because of the bad that is going on. And we say this isn't, shouldn't happen to me. What are we f- basically saying? We're saying, I live in this world, and this world isn't delivering for me. It owes me. I deserve more. Okay. Hopefully, what we've done in that, we've been able to say, as we've analyzed pride, we've been able to say, do you know what? We all fall into that. How can we deal with it? What is the Bible's response to this issue of pride? Verse 37. In this story is a great perspective. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Was that just kind of uh, an academic sentence that he's used there? A theoretical set of words? I know that God is that big, and he can humble people. You know, oh, No, no, no. He's saying I know that God is that big. I know that he can humble people. I know that he can bring people down. But you know what? In being brought down, I know what that's like. I've been there. I've I know what my heart is like. And and the outcome of me being humbled by God is what? I'll praise him. I'll extol him. I'll raise him up. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that precisely the opposite of what we would expect? Wouldn't we naturally expect if somebody is going to humble me, I'm going to hate them. If somebody is going to drive me down, I'm not going to I'm, I'm not want anything to do with them. But that is not what God does. He says, do you know what? When I humble you, when I bring you down, it is not to destroy you. It is not to crush you. It is for you to have an insight to say, I need you. God in heaven I need you you bring me down low you humble me just like Nebuchadnezzar was brought down low the outcome of that is what I'm going to find joy in you because you will never bring me down that low without revealing yourself to me when you humble me when you humble me I'm going to get lifted up See that's so different, isn't it? Isn't that so different to the way we exalt ourselves with each other? Isn't that what pride is all about? You know, Serena Williams. <laughs> I'm better than you. I'm better than all of you other uh, female tennis players who are playing on number one and center court. I'm better than you. I should be. I should be the one there, and you should be the one here. You see, for me to get exalted means that you get. Driven down. And God says, do you know what? When I get exalted, in your eyes, you get lifted up. How does that work? How is it that God can lift us up by humbling us? I think the answer is one name. Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Why God can humble us yet lift us up. Let me show you how this works. Jesus came into the world and we can, we can see in his life. We can see the way he lived. We can see that he lived an incredibly humble life. He came into the world and, and the, the most menial task when you had a, a, a meal together the menial task of the servants, you know, the lowest servant, the person who was right at the bottom of the pecking order, got to wash the feet of the guests. That's what they did. That was the, if you like, that was the, uh, the tradition. You had your feet washed before you sat down, you'd be reclining, your feet would be bare, and quite honestly, that's not particularly pleasant if your feet are mucky and dusty from the journey. And so the lowly servant is the one who's given the job of washing the feet of the guests at the meal. Jesus invites his friends, his disciples, for a meal. And then he strips off his top, wraps it round his waist, takes a bowl of water, sits them down and washes their feet. Why? Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus wash the disciples' feet? Was it in some way to kind of prove how humble he was? It wasn't to prove in that sense, but it was to prepare them. If you think that me washing your feet is being humble, just you wait. Just you wait. Because if you think that me taking off my top, wrapping it round my middle, and getting hold of your dirty feet and washing them is an act of humility, just you wait until you see me stripped—not down to the waist, completely. Wait until you see me stripped and then beaten. Wait until you see me with my blood poured out, humbled beyond your imagination. Why? So that you can be exalted. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that the complete reversal of pride? And yet it achieved the greatest success, the greatest triumph that this world has ever seen. Jesus comes into this world. He humbles himself. He he becomes the most broken He's stripped of everything, and yet he achieves beyond recognition. As, we work, as I was working through this, it just something just hit me. What is pride? Nebuchadnezzar and we live as if we own the world, and we have to learn that we don't. That's what Nebuchadnezzar learned. He lived as if he owned the world and he had to learn that he didn't. It's God's world. He lives in God's world. And everything that he possibly receives as he stood on the balcony, what was the right response as he stood on the balcony? The right response is, look at all of this that God has given for me to be responsible for. That's what he should have said. And he had to learn that he lives in God's world, not his own world. He has to learn that he doesn't own it, that God owns it. Now, listen to this Jesus behaved as though he didn't own the world to prove to us that he does. Isn't that remarkable? He came into this world as if he didn't own it. And yet, he owns the world in what he does. To prove to us that in him there is eternal life, there is hope, there is a future, there is the destruction of our self-centeredness in him. Now, how do we work this out? if you're at the point of, and you just know that you've come to faith wherever it might be, in the past, maybe decades ago, maybe just in the past few months, and you're thinking to yourself, as we've worked through this, I've begun to realize that, that pride is an issue for me. It's not that I'm super proud of what I've achieved. It might be that you've realized and I've realized but my problem with, with pride is frustration in what is happening that I think I don't deserve. <laughs> we need to learn, we need to understand that God will strip of us of everything in order to, resp- to understand that we depend on him. That is the greatest privilege he can ever give us. That is the greatest gift he can ever give us. Is to say, I'll strip you of everything so that you will rely on me. How bad was it for Nebuchadnezzar? He was mad for seven years. He was stripped of his kingdom for seven years. But the outcome was that the greatest, most powerful man in the whole of the world was in true relationship with the living God. You see that? I would suggest, from what the Bible says here, it is quite likely that you and me, if we trust in Jesus, we are going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Why? Because the outcome was eternal life for him. That's what was at stake. And so we can live our lives understanding that the things that are stripping us of our security are the best things that God ever gives us because it strips us of our pride. You might alternatively be saying, is that really the deal? That God might strip me of everything? Can't I do something so that I deserve at least something from him? You know, I, I feel as if I, I'm owed something. I feel as if I deserve something. Let me just say this. If you're thinking in that way, you need to come to terms with, if God works like that, what he will give you back is always limited by how good you were if it works like that if if you think that god will give you back by how good you are you've got to god can only give you back according to how good you are he can only go as far as you go and yet what we receive in jesus as a gift is unlimited it's unlimited suddenly god can give you 10 billion times more than you ever deserve because it's not down to what we deserve from him it's a gift doesn't don't gifts shatter pride they just destroy it there's nothing left for us to be proud of because every good thing comes from him and it's a gift from him isn't it amazing we tend to come to religion and say, look at how good I am. I deserve it. Shattered with the message of Jesus. I'm going to close with this phrase. And I'm going to put it up on the screen because it was by Blaise Pascal. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Just let it sink in. Jesus is the God whom we can approach without pride. We've got to approach him without pride. Every other religion says, What are you going to bring me? (laughs) And Jesus says, Don't even think about coming like that. Come to me without pride. And you say, But that's going to humble me. Yeah. And before whom we can humble ourselves without despair. I'm brought low before God. I'm not despairing because suddenly everything is about him everything is about him